All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll get rolling with this session. Father, thank you so much for tonight and this opportunity to dig into your word and hear from you as you speak through Brian. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for this time together as we worship in the word of God, and, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you welcome Brian Young? All right. Uh, what we're going to do is, uh, we're gonna, uh, it says part two because it's gonna, we're building on what I talked about Sunday if you were here. Now, if you weren't here Sunday, that's okay. Uh, a, you could watch it online, uh, or B, um, it, it doesn't have to, you don't have to hear that to understand what we're going to be talking about here tonight. Uh, but we are going to uh, really just dive deeper into Genesis. One of the things that I had mentioned Sunday is that when we look at Genesis, Today, most people are kind of thinking, well, it's either, you know, creation kind of base. That's what it's all about. And while that is true, there are answers to creation. I've been here two or three times already. I've given a lot of you those kind of things. And I just thought, I want to dive deeper because I want you to see the depth of God's word. It's not so much about the science of creation it's about Jesus Christ and how we get to see him. And one of the verses I shared was in Deuteronomy, which it says that God declares the end from the beginning. We don't really stop to think about what that means. And I really believe that a part of what that means is this, is do you want to know what you know, is going to happen in end times? Do you want to know what heaven's going to be like? Then you need to study the beginning, Genesis. Because in Genesis, the beginning, he declares the end. He declares what things are going to be like. And when we look at the paradise of Garden of Eden, uh, we see that that is indeed a picture and a model of what heaven is. A picture and a model of God's throne, the temple. And I'm not going to go all through that again, but this is kind of where we're picking up. And so tonight, we're going to start here on verse 9 of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, that's great. Follow along. That way you can kind of refer back. Otherwise, I'll have it up here as well. But um, I love to, to hear the, the sound of those pages turning and, and you guys being able to just dive into the Word. It's, it's, it's a wonderful sound. Um, it's like angels' wings. So anyway, in Genesis 2.9 here, it says this. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four head waters. Now, Sunday we talked about that tree of life and that that is a picture of Jesus. I think in a sense it was Jesus. Okay, uh, we're not going to get into that tonight. But we are going to look at the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If one is Jesus, do you think the other one might be the opposite? Kind of a picture of evil? You see, God has a perfect creation, but Satan tries to mimic everything that God does. Everything. There's a tree of life. He's got a tree of knowledge. God is a trinity. So is the devil. Did you know that? You read in Revelation. You go read Revelation 12 and 13. We see a dragon, a false prophet, okay, a beast out of the earth and a beast out of the sea. So you've got the Antichrist, the anti-God, the dragon, and the anti-Holy Spirit, the false prophet. We see Jesus is called the morning star. Guess what? Satan is called the morning star. We see virtually everything 
that God does, Satan tries to mimic. God says it is by grace that you have been saved. And the devil says, yes, it's by grace you've been saved. There is nothing you need to do at all. Which I agree with to a point. But today we have such a, a cheap grace that is being promoted out there that we say, oh, you, you're a Christian? Yeah, you don't need to change your life. You just live however you want. Repentance, no big deal, because it's by grace you've been saved. And so the devil takes that message, and he does what it says in Jude, and he says that there are people who will slip in among you. And not only that, but even from among your own people, there will be those who are going to use this license, this grace as a license to sin. They're not saved. And so the devil is sly, and this is what he does. He takes what is good, and he corrupts it. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit here. Um, there's a lot more that I would like to share that I don't have time to get into, but so we're going to focus on some of the bigger parts. But in verse 10 here, this river gives life. It gives life to that Garden of Eden. In Psalm 46, verse 4, it says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Now, in Psalms, this is really speaking of heaven, and it's a picture, I believe, of what Eden is showing us here as well. There is a river that makes glad. Okay? Also in Revelation 22, that is why we see in the new heaven. We see, he showed me a pure river of water of life. It's called the water of life again, as clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now again, Jesus is called the living waters, right? We can see that many times. If any of you are thirsty, he who comes to me will never thirst again. All these kinds of pictures of the river of life as well. But... Um, for now, let's just look at verse 11 here as well. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin. Some translations will call it Badelium. And onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. Now, one of the things that people always are asking me or telling me is that we can find where the Garden of Eden is today. Because do you know that we still, you know, we've got the Tigris, we've got the Euphrates. We can see where some of these rivers are. Well, i got news for you guys. Noah's flood ruined it all. What happened is when Noah got off the ark, he had, I'm sure, knowledge of that. They knew where the, ark, or the, the Garden of Eden was, Gani Don. They knew where it was. But there was a cherub that was not allowing anybody to get in. Guarding and protecting it. We're going to talk about that later. One of the greatest teachings, I think. But bottom line is, when the flood came, it was destroyed. Noah probably just renamed a couple of rivers. Well, we had these in the past. You know, we're going to name these too. We have no idea that that's the place where it is today. So uh, this idea of trying to find where the Garden of Eden is, I think it's a waste of time. Okay? That's not the point of the scripture here. Um, I'm going to hone in a little bit on the fact that there was a lot of gold there. Not only just gold, but there was this resin, this delium, and onyx. Why are those things mentioned? Well, if this is a picture of heaven, if this is a picture of, of paradise to come, then there must be something there. That gold we see uh, in the tabernacle, we see the priest wear a gold sash. 
we see a gold holy to the Lord on the holy people. They had this gold that was being worn. In heaven, we see there are gold streets, right? You might remember the old Reader's Digest joke where this guy, he dies, he goes to heaven, and he brings a suitcase, and St. Peter meets him at the gate, and he says, I'm sorry, you can't bring that in. And he's like, well, God and I, we had a deal. God said I could bring one suitcase of stuff. So he goes and he checks with God. He comes back and he says, all right, God said that I was just supposed to see what you brought. He says, all right. So he throws this thing up on the table, and uh, St. Peter apparently opens it up, and he looks, and he sees all these gold bars. And he looks up, just so confused. He says, pavement? Why do you bring pavement? You see, what's so precious to us now, the streets are lined with it in heaven. So anyway, the manna in the desert. We see the manna is Jesus, right? In John 6, he says that I am the bread that came down from heaven. He's associated as that manna. Well, what's interesting is it tells us in Numbers as well as in Exodus, if I just picked one of them here, it says the manna looked like coriander seed, and it looked like resin. Now, that word resin is the exact same word used here in Genesis in what was in the Garden of Eden, delium. In other words, manna, it was white like coriander seed, and it looked like that precious thing in the Garden of Eden. That's what the scriptures tell us. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 2, David has a whole list of things that he collects for the temple of God. It says, Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for the things to be made of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron, wood, and he goes on, onyx stones, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. All these precious stones, but gold and onyx are also listed there. On the breastplate of the priest, onyx was listed and so we see that there is a, a taking you back to the Garden of Eden. And I don't care whether you are in you know, the Exodus period or if you go into the New Testament, God is always pointing us back to creation and to the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden. Always. Well, it's kind of interesting. If the manna was white, then we also see then that this resin must have been white. In Exodus 25 and in 28, as I just said, we see the high priest is to wear two onyx stones. And the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel were listed on this. But what's fascinating to me is the purpose, why God had the names written on them. And it says this, fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones. The question is, a memorial of what? I think they knew exactly what he was saying you were supposed to remember. We, we read this and we just zip right by it and we don't even think anything of it. I think he's saying, remember the Garden of Eden. They are a memorial before the Lord. Because those stones would have taken them back to the Garden. Look what it says here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone 
with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. You ever wonder why this white stone? Well, when we see this white stone, we see it should, to a Jew, it would take them back to the priests. It would take them back to the Garden of Eden. And so, in other words, what we're seeing here in paradise, we are seeing Eden restored. That is a picture that we are supposed to be seeing. Not just, oh, how did the dinosaurs go on the ark? We're supposed to be seeing Eden restored. And as much as I believe it's important to have answers to the questions about dinosaurs and, and where all the floodwaters came from, as much as that is important, I think it can also become a distraction today of what the real reason God recorded all of this for. The real reason is to point us to Jesus in the future coming paradise. In verse 14, he says, The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. The fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. This is what I love. This Hebrew word here where he says to take care of it, it's shamar in Hebrew. That word shamar is going to be very important. We're going to come to it, and I'll give you more in a minute, but just take note of that. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That word shamar, it literally means this, to hedge about as with thorns, to guard, to protect. When God put Adam in the garden, he had a purpose for him, to protect the garden. That's huge, guys. Remember, we talked Sunday. He's in a glorified state. What does somebody in a glorified state need to be doing protecting a paradise? Well, God knew. Satan, I believe Satan has already fallen at this point. I, based on Ezekiel 28, I think Satan has fallen somewhere between day one and day three of creation. And so even in this glorified state, Adam had a job. You are to protect, hedge this garden. Now, by the way, the next time we see this word, we're going to see it's when the cherub is stuck. When Adam and Eve are kicked out, the cherub are put by the gate on the east. And he is to shamar the garden of Eden. But prior to the cherub guarding the, the, the garden, Adam's job. You see, God was created. He was given full dominion, full authority, full power. Whatever Adam said, went. As I mentioned Sunday, I'll talk about it again. It says in Scripture, he, he names all the animals, and whatever he named them, that was its name. Just like when it says that God, when he, he, he says, called it the firmament, and it was so. Whatever God said, it was so. Whatever Adam said, it was so. Adam is the picture of complete authority, power, and dominion in this garden. That's why he was put there, to have dominion over it, to protect it. Now, fathers, this is huge for you. You men, you know what that means? You are to be the protector of your garden. You are to be the protector of your home. You are to be the protector of, of your wife, your spouse, your family. The protector of this church. 
This is a huge responsibility, and we're really going to talk about this and dive in more later when we get to part five, whenever that is. But bottom line is, this is so important. There was a purpose for Adam. You see, guys, we often think, oh, Adam, we'll just go live and live a life of pleasure. But even in paradise, there was a responsibility. Likewise today, even though we have been saved by grace through faith, we have a responsibility that God has placed us, given us. We often think that now that we're Christians, we just go live a life of peace and happiness and pleasure, right? No, Jesus said this, I tell you, they will hate you because of me. You will be persecuted because of me. He says this is a war. You are a soldier. You are to go out. You are to fight. He says it's a race. You must run and persevere. This isn't just a little pleasurely jog. It's a race. It is hard. But God is with you. He will walk with you. But we are still to guard the garden. Like I said, we're going to come back to that. We'll circle back around because it's so important. But in Exodus 20 and verse 5, here's another aspect of this. We're given the Ten Commandments in both of those verses. Now, it, it says in Deuteronomy, it says that we are to uh, remember the Sabbath. Zohar, I believe is the word. Zohar, the, the Sabbath. Remember it. Now, I find that very interesting as well. Out of all ten commandments, there's only one he told you to remember. Out of all ten commandments, which one do we forget? The Sabbath. I mean, we don't have to remind you, don't kill anybody, do we? You know, don't murder. You know, uh, don't steal. People don't have a hard time. But the one that we do seem to forget is remember the Sabbath. The very one he told us to remember, we forget. But then we go and we see in the other verse where these commandments are given here, that same word shamar is used again. Guard, protect. Do we really protect that day anymore? Not really, do we? This is such an important commandment. Not because by obeying it you get to be a you know, higher up Christian. But God is saying if you keep these commandments, if you honor the Sabbath, if you remember that, if you protect it, and you take that day so that you make it holy, that you will rest and be in my word and, and to fellowship with one another. He says there's going to be a blessing in that. That's going to keep you from going astray. But what happens is we don't give God that time. And so as a result, because of the captivity of activity, we go astray. Not because you didn't necessarily keep the commandment, but because you weren't in God's word, because you didn't have time. Because you didn't keep that commandment. It's a blessing to remember, protect the Sabbath. And like I said, the next time we see it is in the garden when the cherub comes. Note in verse 16 here of our verses, there was food in the garden. He says, you may eat of that tree. You may eat of any tree you want, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Note, there was a commandment in paradise. Just like even though we are forgiven today, there are commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do 
Some of these trees you could eat from, one you could not. It, the first commandment was a food law, you might say. Okay? And by the way, one of them in the end is a food law, as we see in Isaiah. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But it's a food law. And the result of disobedience to that law was death. You see, in verse 17, it goes on and it says, The tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that kind of strange? I mean, how can you put those two together? Good and evil. I thought something's either good or it's evil. I think there's a message here, and I think the message is something that I'm seeing in the churches all over the place. Syncretism. Today, this is what we have going on all the time. It's syncretism. It's a mixing of the two. And today, this is exactly what we see in the churches. It's exactly what we see in the world. Mixing the two. I'm sure you can think of hundreds of examples of where we are doing this in the church today. Even when it comes to creation. Well, I believe that God created the earth, but I believe still in this millions of years and that God used evolution as his way of creating things. I'm going to put one foot in the world, one foot in God's word. I'm going to mix the two. Cheap grace, another example. I'm going to mix the two. Yes, I'm saved, but you know what? It's okay for me to practice homosexuality because God loves me. Syncretism. Well, Allah, God, it's the same person, just a different name. Syncretism. No, it is not the same person. Even the Quran says that Allah has no son. <laughs> that pretty much gets rid of Christianity right there, doesn't it? Again, we could go through example upon example, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mixing it together, which is what we see in Revelation. He says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Syncretism. That hot and cold knowledge of good and evil, connecting Genesis and Revelation here together as well. It's also interesting that it's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and not like just the tree of death. I mean, wouldn't that maybe helped Adam a little bit? Okay, well, here's the tree of life and everything, but here's the tree of destruction and death. Right? I mean, if I would have been God, I think I would have called it that. I'd have had this tree probably have maggots coming out of it, pus oozing out of it rather than sap. Right? I mean, it would have been disgusting. It would have stunk terribly. So that you would have stayed as far away from it as possible. But is that how it works in life? Is that what sin is like? No. Sin is so attractive. It smells good. It looks good. It feels good. It has everything to attract you to it. Except for one thing. A command. Thou shalt not. That's the position Adam was in. He had this thing that looked good, smelled good, did everything good, but thou shalt not. So I'm not going to. I will obey the commandments of God. You see, Scripture, I believe, is showing us a picture here that we are to be separate. 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, somewhere in Corinthians, it says that ye, ye, be ye separate. We're not to blend in with this world. 
We are to be different. It's okay. It's okay to stand on creation and be proud to stand on the world uh, or on the Bible rather than the world's way of understanding things. Now, I think it makes perfectly perfect good sense scientifically. But even if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I should still be willing to stand on the Word of God rather than being swayed into the world. We see so many examples of other types of syncretism here. Deuteronomy 7, Israel is told not to give their daughters to foreigners in marriage. Not to be unequally yoked, you might say, as well. Deuteronomy 12, don't, don't apply the ways of worship of the Gentiles to the true God. You're not to worship the way the world does. You worship this way. I'm going to tell you how you do it. And today, you know, a pastor was asking me kind of a little bit what I meant by when I got up Sunday and I said, you know, I don't mean to, this isn't a complaint. I wasn't talking about this church. I was trying to build you up to say, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about the worship that the world has to offer, but I am. Because we have mixed it together. One of the things I was telling him is that, do you know that many churches, we have these repetitive verses where you sing the same verse about 15 times? Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to do that, but do you know why we do that? Just do a little study. You're going to see like in the emergent church and whatnot. We do that because of the, the, the eastern roots that these men have studied under. They studied under a thing called Course of Miracles, the Course on Miracles, that Oprah Winfrey was all about, by the way. And what it does is it takes the Eastern religions and it has put it into our churches today. The idea of the Eastern religion is you have a mantra, and if you say that mantra over and over, you empty the mind so that you can receive a spirit. And so that idea has been planted into the church today so that we don't want you thinking about the words of a song. We just want you to say this mantra over and over and over and over to empty the mind so that you can be open to the Holy Spirit. Guys, we don't conjure up the Holy Spirit. And when I worship God, I, I don't need to have a warm, fuzzy feeling in my emotions. No, I can have that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against emotions. I'm all for it. But what I'm saying is that's not what we build on. That's not our measure of truth. That's not a measure of whether or not God was with me today. We have pastors, come on, church. You know, you want to experience God today? Guess what? I'm going to experience Him whether I feel Him or not. I experience Him by the promises of His Word that says He is with me and He will never leave me. And whether I have that warm fuzzy or not, He hasn't left me. But that's a type of syncretism that has crept into our churches today. We see James 4, that friendship with the world is an enemy of God. We want to live like a Christian, but yet we still want our old God, ungodly friends. We want to live like the world. Say, watch the same filth that they watch. Listen to the same filth that they watch. We've got 2 Corinthians 6 uh, with the unequally yoked. Deuteronomy 22 talks about not sowing uh, or mixing two different types of seed or two different types of clothing. Again, it's a picture, just like in the Garden of Eden, good and evil. It's a spiritual picture that we are to be separate, set apart, holy for God. Lots of examples that we could look at. Well, Sunday, I, I gave you a little clip of the book of Enoch. And in case you weren't there, I need to explain this again. The book of Enoch is not in the Bible, should not be in the Bible, I don't believe. Okay? Um, it was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in Qumran. The Jews have held it in high regard, but even they do not believe it's the inspired word of God. Okay? 
At best, I think it's some good history. What I do think is that when I can look at historical documents, and I can see that it lines up with what Scripture says, I can, it might help us have some better insight into some things. But I'm certainly not going to make doctrines out of it. Okay? But what we see here in the book of Enoch, I showed you what it said about the tree of life. Let's see what it says about this tree of knowledge of good and evil. It says, after these fragrant odors, as I looked towards the north over the mountains, I saw seven mountains full of choice nard, fragrant trees and cinnamon and pepper, and thence went over the summits of all these mountains far towards the east of the earth and passed above the Erythian Sea and went far from it and passed over the angel Zotiel, and I came to the Garden of Righteousness. So basically, as I said Sunday, there are these seven mountains, three on each side, and then one in the middle that seems to be God's throne. And here he says it's the Garden of Righteousness, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. And he says, and from afar these trees, more numerous than these trees, and great, two great trees there, very great, beautiful, glorious, magnificent, and the tree of knowledge, whose holy fruit they eat and know great wisdom. Now it's kind of interesting, this tree of wisdom, knowledge, it seems like a good thing. We'll get to that here in a moment, right? Because, well, let's hit it now. Wisdom, we look at wisdom as Good. We, we automatically hear wisdom, you kind of associate it with God. But the Bible talks about a worldly wisdom as well. Man's wisdom. We see here in 1 Corinthians 1.20, it says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So when we're talking about the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that tree of knowledge we, it isn't always a good thing. This is where this whole idea of creation and evolution has fallen apart because people keep eating off of the tree of knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. We always want to have some knowledge, something to know. This is where the Gnostics came from, if you're familiar with them. Now, I'm not against knowledge, unless it's not founded on God's Word. Because like I said, I can look at creation, and I can see, if I start with the foundation of God's Word, science fits. But if you don't start with that, you can come up with all kinds of other worldly knowledge that is just a lie. It's that simple. Isaiah 47 says, you must... Or you have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you. That's where we are in America today. Our wisdom, our knowledge, all these professors with PhDs at Harvard. Okay? They, they know their ABCs and one, two, threes, but yet the Bible says they're fools because the fool says in his heart there is no God. It's false knowledge. Wisdom that has misled them. You see, these are examples of corrupted wisdom. We were never meant to come in contact with corrupted wisdom. We were never meant to know certain things like evil, pornography. These were things that our eyes should have never seen. But because of the devil, it was a twisting of good. 
On the flip side, the tree of life, if you recall, it was called the tree of truth. True wisdom as well. It says, speaking of true wisdom, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her will fast be blessed. Enoch continues here in verse 4, being amazed at the tree's height here, this knowledge of good and evil. The tree in its height is like the fir. Its leaves are like those of the carob tree, and its fruit like the cluster of the vine, very beautiful, and the fragrance of the tree penetrates afar. You can smell it from afar off. You ever walk by lilac bushes and you can smell them across the street? How about this was even much more. And it says, Then I said, How beautiful is the tree? How attractive is its look? And Raphael, the holy angel who was with me, answered and said, This is the tree of wisdom, of which thy father old, in years, and thy aged mother, who were before thee, have eaten. And they learnt wisdom, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked and that they were driven out of the garden. This is the tree of wisdom that caused all of this destruction. You see, by the way, what's going on here in Enoch is there's an angel who is taking Enoch, whether through vision or whatever, I don't know, but he has seen these things. A glimpse of the past, you might say. Now, I believe at this point that tree of knowledge of good and evil was still there when Enoch was alive. It's not until the flood, probably, it is wiped out, the Garden of Eden. Because that cherub seems to have guarded that garden all the way to the time of the flood. And then, no more. So, I think Enoch would have been very familiar with this garden, but he just couldn't get in. But it does. You know, sin greets us from afar as well, doesn't it? Like I said, it doesn't drip with maggots. It doesn't look attractive. Sometimes it can. But most often, I should say look evil, most often it does look attractive. Candy-coated. And that is one of the devil's great tricks. It's attractive. It draws you in from afar. It smells good. It mimics what is good. It's not going to hurt you. It's going to be good for you. I can handle, you can handle looking at this pornography this one time. You're strong enough not to get hooked. You're strong enough not to get hooked on drugs. Going out and partying this one time, it won't affect you. All these lies that Satan does when God says, no. We say, well, how about yourself? Stay away. Hosea warns us here in chapter 10, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Do you think he might be trying to take us back to the Garden of Eden in this verse? When you start thinking this way, you're going to see through the prophets and into Revelation, you're going to see even in Jesus' words how many times he's drawing us back to the beginning. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. See, that is the nature and the reality of sin. It's alluring. You know, even Proverbs, it talks about this harlot, right? And her lips drip with maggots. No, honey. 
Okay, if they dripped with maggots, you'd stay far away. But instead, it drips with honey. Because it's a deceptive thing and we depend on our own strength. I'm strong enough. I can tell you something, guys. None of you are strong enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't care what sin it is. We're not strong enough. This is why it is through Christ that we can do all things. We need to be in His Word. We need to be focused on His Word. We need to be meditating on His Word. We need to be having that in the forefront of our mind each and every day to keep us from doing the things that we shouldn't be doing. And when we fail, which we all do and we're all going to do, we can get back up and say, thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness, that the law has no longer a condemnation for me. But I'm still going to obey that law. If I fall a thousand times... I'm going to get back up and I'm going to obey it again. When I disobey it, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to obey it again. I'm not going to give up. But that's the problem is too often we give up. We give up too early. Here's what happens, guys. When we give up, you remember David? When David was, uh, he had a son and uh, I'm trying to, I, his name is escaping me. One of you pastors can help me. But Tamar, he fell in love with Tamar. One of David's sons. Now, he wanted to have Tamar. And he loved her to the point to where he was sick. He wasn't allowed to have her. Thou shalt not. There was a command. He knew it was wrong. And you know what? That's exactly what happens. I was listening to a message and it was talking about Ray Bolts and Ray Bolts was talking about how depressed he was until he came out and gave in to his homosexuality. Depressed. Physical sickness. Why? Because his flesh was screaming for disobedience. Just as what was happening with David's son here. His flesh was screaming to the point it literally made him physically sick. And rather than continue to say no, continue to persevere, to continue to run the race, he gave in to get rid of the sickness. He disobeyed God. And what was the result? Ultimately, death. It's hard sometimes, but we can't give up. This is where the gospel is so beautiful. Because we will fail. But we get up, we repent, and we say, thank you, Jesus. And though we fail, we still have won. Because Jesus has won for us. So that tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's still very real today in our lives. It's still there alluring us. It's still there deceiving us. But we don't need to be afraid. Because we have the tree of life that has overcome. But do not give in. I'll tell you, like I said, we're, we're going to talk when we get to Adam and Eve in the fall. I am so excited to share this with you. Um, you're going to be amazed uh, to see Christ in ways that I think you've never had. I think you're going to have a whole different view of Adam when you leave. That you're not ever going to see Adam the same. And so I hope you can come. Uh, we are out of time here for today, so I was hoping to get a little bit into part three, but um, we're not going to make it. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time, and I thank you for the tree of life. 
Father, we choose to eat from that tree. And when we fail, Lord, we choose to, to look at that tree as well, knowing that you have redeemed us. Yes, we have been kicked out of the garden because we have sinned. But Father, that garden, we are going to get back in again as you have told us in Revelation that you are coming back and that you have gone to prepare a place for us in heaven. And we will be planted there someday as well. In the meantime, Father, we are planted here and we ask that you would be our strength to guard and to protect our garden. That our home, we would not allow the devil to get in. We would not allow deception to get in. That we would stand firm and use your word, the sword of truth, to fight off any evil that tries to get into our homes. And so we just ask that um, you would continue to pour your godly wisdom into our lives to combat the lies of the world's wisdom. That we may lead our families, train them up in the way they should go, so that when they are old, they will not turn from it. In Jesus' name, amen.